there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 31, Men of Iron, the Polybian Roman Legion. In the second of three special episodes, we will do a brief overview of the Polybian Roman army, which fought the majority of the Punic Wars. The next episode will cover the Carthaginian army under Hannibal, before we return to the narrative and commence the Second Punic War. Much ink has been spilled over the centuries discussing the Roman army, arguably one of the most studied and emulated armies in history. And if I was to trace it from its origins to the times of Polybius, we could be here quite literally for days. So what I have decided to do is to give a brief snapshot of the Roman army as described by Polybius, focusing on a general outline of the organization, equipment, and fighting ethos of the Republican Roman. We will leave the various developments and reforms, the when, where, why, and how they happened, to specialist historians, a few of whom I will link in the description for anyone seeking further information. As we remember from episode 17, Rome was a civilization born in blood. From the days of Romulus, Rome had waged a nearly constant war of survival amid the multitude of petty Latin kingdoms and cities surrounding her, each filled with hosts of warlike, stubborn peoples eager to destroy their neighbors. Despite the odds, Rome not only survived, but thrived in this hostile environment, slowly but steadily adding territory to her homeland year by year. However, Her progress was incredibly slow in the 250 years from the date of her traditional founding, 753 BC, with Rome adding approximately one square mile of territory every year. Only after her victories over her Latin neighbors in 338 BC did Rome's rate of expansion increase exponentially. Surrounded by such warlike neighbors and trained in the School of Hard Knocks, the Romans developed early on a reputation for ferocity and discipline. Courage, especially martial courage, defined as vertas, a word meaning something akin to excellence, stood out as the preeminent virtue in the early Republic, the definitive statement of what it meant to be a man. And nowhere was vertas better exemplified than in the life of Titus Manlius Imperiosus Torquatus. The first time he steps onto the pages of history, it is clear that Torquatus is destined to hold an honored place in the pantheon of Roman heroes. A Gaul of extraordinary stature strode forward onto the unoccupied bridge, and shouting as loudly as he could, cried, Let the bravest man that Rome possesses come out and fight me that we too may decide which people is the superior in war. A long silence followed. The best and bravest of the Romans made no sign. They felt ashamed of appearing to decline the challenge, and yet they were reluctant to expose themselves to such terrible danger. Thereupon, Titus Manlius, the youth who had protected his father from the persecution of the tribune, left his post and went to the dictator. Without your orders, general, he said, I will never leave my post to fight. No, not even if I saw that victory was certain. But if you give me permission, I want to show that monster as he stalks so proudly in front of their lines, 
that I am a scion of that family which hurled the troops of Gauls from the Tarpeian rock. Then the dictator said, Success to your courage, Titus Manlius, and to your affection for your father and your fatherland. Go, and with the help of the gods, show that the name of Rome is invincible. Then his comrades fastened on his armor, and he took an infantry shield and a Spanish sword as better adapted for close fighting. Thus armed and equipped, they led him forward against the Gaul, who was exulting in his brute strength, and even, the ancients thought this worth recording, putting out his tongue in derision. They retired to their post, and the two armed champions were left alone in the midst, more after the manner of a scene on the stage than under the conditions of serious war, and to those who judge by appearances, by no means equally matched. The one was a creature of enormous bulk, resplendent in a many-colored coat and wearing painted and gilded armor, the other a man of average height, and his arms, useful rather than ornamental, gave him quite an ordinary appearance. There was no singing of war songs, no prancing about, no silly brandishing of weapons. With a breast full of courage and silent wrath, Manlius reserved all his ferocity for the actual moment of conflict. When they had taken their stand between the two armies, while so many hearts around them were in suspense between hope and fear, the Gaul, like a great overhanging mass, held out his shield on his left arm to meet his adversary's blows, and aimed a tremendous cut downwards with his sword. The Roman evaded the blow, and pushing aside the bottom of the Gaul's shield with his own, he slipped under it close up to the Gaul, too near for him to get at him with his sword. Then turning the point of his blade upwards, he gave two rapid thrusts in succession and stabbed the Gaul in the belly and the groin, laying his enemy prostrate over a large extent of the ground. He left the body of his fallen foe undespoiled, with the exception of his necklace, which though smeared with blood, he placed around his own neck. Astonishment and fear kept the Gallic army motionless. The Romans ran eagerly forward from their lines to meet their warrior, and amid cheers and congratulations they conducted him to the dictator. In the doggerel verses with which they extemporized his honor, they called him Torquatus, adorned with the necklace. And this nickname became for his posterity a proud family name. Two characteristics would have struck the later generations of Romans who listened to the account of Torquatus's exploits. The first was his aforementioned Virtas, his manly courage and aggression in accepting the hulking Gallic champion's challenge. As we discussed in episode 15, the Gauls formed a favorite nemesis for the Romans with their huge stature and frenzied bravery, and Torquatus vanquishing such a foe in single combat exemplified the virtues of virtas, aggression, courage, and contempt of death. The second characteristic that would have stood out to a Roman audience is easily overlooked by modern readers. Not only did Torquatus demonstrate virtas by volunteering to risk his life in a seemingly unequal combat, but he also exemplified the other balancing virtue of the ideal Roman, disciplina. In his book, Soldiers and Ghosts, 
Historian J.E. Linden describes the difficulty of defining this elusive Roman term. Discipline, the flat English translation, fails to convey the full force of this Roman concept. For disciplina was not primarily a system of imposed or felt rules to make an unwarlike people place themselves in danger, to do something unnatural to them. In the old stories, the Romans used to think about disciplina, tales like the son of Manlius Torquatus, as conceived primarily as a break to overly aggressive behavior. Roman disciplina was thus understood to be more of a curb than a spur. Before engaging the Gaul in an act of virtus, Torquatus requested permission from his superior officer to leave his post in the ranks, satisfying disciplina. Without your orders, General, Livy quotes him as saying, I will never leave my post to fight, no, not even if I saw that victory was certain. But if you give me permission, I want to show that monster as he stalks so proudly in front of their lines that I am a scion of that family which hurled the troops of Gauls from the Tarpeian rock. This sentence encapsulates the two ideals of the Roman military man, reckless aggression and staunch obedience partially intended to curb such aggression. Obviously, these two ideals form something of a paradox between them, and the Roman army for centuries struggled to resolve the innate tension between them. In a world where military glory and political advancement went hand in hand, generations of Roman sons had to outdo their fathers and grandfathers in valor, leading to greater difficulties in enforcing disciplina in the army. Torquatus' own son suffered such a fate. When he left the line to duel an enemy champion in the Latin War, disobeying the orders of his father, who now served as consul. Upon returning to Torquatus' tent, the young man boasted that he had only done so to uphold his father's legacy. I did this, that all may say, my father, that I am the true scion of your blood. Thus I bring to you these equestrian spoils taken from a dead enemy who challenged me to single combat. Unimpressed, Torquatus turned away from his son and ordered him bound. Since you, Titus Manlius, have shown no regard for either the authority of a consul or the obedience due to a father, and in defiance of our edict have left your post to fight against the enemy, and have done your best to destroy the military disciplina through which the Roman state has stood till now unshaken, and have forced upon me the necessity of forgetting either my duty to the Republic or my duty to myself and my children. It is better that we should suffer the consequences of our offense ourselves than that the state should overlook our crime and thus inflict a greater injury upon itself. We shall be a melancholy example, but one that will be profitable to the young men of the future. My natural love of my children and that proof of courage which from a false sense of honor you have given move me to take your part, but since either the consul's authority must be vindicated by your death or forever diminished by letting you go unpunished, I would believe that even yourself, if there is a drop of my blood in your veins, will not shrink from restoring by your punishment the military disciplina which has been weakened by your misconduct. Go, Lictor. Bind him to the stake. A few moments later, Torquatus's son lay dead. 
Despite the harsh fates handed out to instances of military insubordination, such as those imposed on Torquatus's son, Roman leaders often found themselves fighting a losing battle to enforce disciplina over virtas. As supreme generals in the field, Roman consuls wielded nearly unlimited power over their men, in theory. Polybius, for instance, was awed at the severity of Roman discipline when compared with that of Greek armies. But the consuls nevertheless had more difficulty in curtailing their men's desire to fight than in goading them to battle. The Roman desire for single combat and achieving the spolia opima, the slaying of an enemy commander by fighting hand-to-hand, stripping them of their armor, and bringing it back to the Temple of Jupiter, Homeric style, inspired countless aristocratic young men to feats of reckless courage that resembled the fantastic individual bravery of the Gauls more than the technical proficiency of the Greek phalanx. This driving desire to overcome an enemy mano a mano in a fair fight without trickery expressed itself in a marked distaste for many of the rank-and-file soldiers and even the officers to adhere to a general's overarching plan of battle if that involved delaying the clash of arms. Among the Romans, writes Polybius, a bit of a trace of the old philosophy of war is left. They declare war openly, rarely use ambushes, and fight their battles hand-to-hand at close quarters. Even given this necessarily broad generalization, the everyday Romans wished to adhere to these values, however much they may have fallen short of them in reality. This stubborn refusal to accept nuanced tactics and strategy would come back to haunt the Romans time and time again, and never so much as when they fought Hannibal, a master strategist and tactician, by any standard. As we shall see in the coming episodes, Hannibal proved exceptional at using the Romans' greatest strength, their virtas, against them enabling him to strike down legion after legion which marched against him. In the end, only the truly great Roman commanders, like Scipio Africanus, or those willing to enforce a harsh disciplinary regime like Aemilius Paulus, managed to maintain disciplina on par with the innate Roman virtas. Yet at times, even these commanders had to bow to the demands of their troops, to lead them straight into battle, on a fair field without any advantages, to measure themselves man-to-man against their foes. This cultural necessity to balance virtas with disciplina likely led the Romans to their famous checkerboard formation, the triplex acquis. As we remember from episode 17, the Roman army seems to have advanced from fighting as an archaic phalanx to a more flexible formation with maniples, a word which means handfuls, of 120 men organized into offsetting squares similar to the checkered pattern on a chessboard. At full paper strength, a legion, a word literally meaning levy, would consist of approximately 4,200 men. Each console, the highest Roman military rank, would normally command approximately two legions, which in turn were commanded by six military tribunes. Besides the Romans themselves, 
a roughly equally sized contingent supplied by 150 cities of Latin allies, or Socii, accompanied a legion into the field. These allies fought in a similar manner to the Roman legions, and they also supplied nearly 75% of Roman cavalry. 300 such horsemen accompanied each legion. At the front of the triplex Achilles would be the velites, meaning fast men, who would be the youngest and poorest members of the legion. These men skirmished with the enemy line before battle, fighting with javelins and a shield. However, even in the ranks of the velites, Virtus could be found, for the velites often were not afraid to close with the enemy and fight hand-to-hand with their swords. Indeed, Many velites prided themselves so much on their feats of individual prowess that they wore wolfskins so that their commanders would notice their achievements. Behind the velites stood 1,200 hastati, the second youngest group in the legion. Behind the velites stood 1,200 hastati, the second youngest group in the legion. These men were more heavily armed than the velites having a large wooden shield with a metal rim, the scutum, in addition to a short straight sword, the famous gladius hispaniensis, or Spanish sword, as well as two pilum, a type of specially designed javelin, a plumed helmet, greaves, and, if wealthy enough, some form of armor, either a square bronze plate worn around the mid-chest or a chainmail coat. Unlike the Greek phalanx, which was designed around holding formation as tightly as possible, the Roman legionary's equipment was intended to enable him to close rapidly with an individual enemy after first showering the opposing line with his pilum. These javelins were made so as to bend on impact, making it more difficult for the enemy to draw them out of wounds or shields and also preventing them from being thrown back at the advancing Romans. After throwing his pilum, the Roman soldier would close quickly with the enemy, using his shield as a punching weapon and his sword for quick, close stabbing, putting his virtas on display for all to see. Behind the hastati stood 1,200 principes or principes, meaning first men. These were men in the prime of life and at the peak of their physical abilities. Armed in a similar manner to the Hastati, the Principes would advance from the second line of the legion through the gaps in the formation if the Hastati failed to break the enemy. We do not necessarily have a good grasp on how the Romans performed this complex maneuver with the first line of Hastati retreating behind the fresh wave of Principes, and the fact that the Romans were able to pull off such tactics in the face of an enemy advance speaks to their tremendous discipline and skill at warfare. Forming the third and final line of the legion, the triarii, or third men, contain the most veteran and experienced soldiers in the legion. Organized into half-maniples with 600 men each, the triarii were only called in if the fighting proved especially hard, leading to the Latin proverb of coming to the triarii, meaning that a situation was critical. Unlike the Hastati and Principes, the triarii retained the long spear of the phalanx in addition to their scutum and gladius. When summoned into action, 
the Triarii would actually fight in a close phalanx formation, covering the withdrawal of the Hastati and Principes through the gaps in the Roman lines. Thus we have the Triplex Achaeis, the fighting formation of the Manipular Roman Legion. The formation arranged men in escalating ranks of Virtas, with the youngest and most aggressive soldiers fighting as Velites in the front, one-on-one -on -one Homeric style, followed by the slightly older Hastati, the middle-aged Principes, and finally the veteran Triarii of proven valor, holding the final line in a phalanx. By grouping men according to age and prestige, the legionary formation offered an embodiment of the Roman ideal, allowing the young full room to prove themselves in combat, while reserving the experience and steadfastness of the grizzled campaigners for when the battle became desperate. It was a brilliant military formation, but more than that, it was a cultural expression of how the Romans viewed themselves in the world. Yet for all its merits, the Triplex Achaeis alone cannot explain Rome's success. Even though for many years, historians and scholars alike have considered the Triplex Achaeis to be what gave the Romans the edge over their opponents, of late, doubts have been cast on this assumption. If the Triplex Achaeis allow for a greater degree of tactical flexibility, as well as the ability to bring up fresh reserves of men and relieve wounded or weary maniples, it also had very real drawbacks, such as requiring withdrawals before the enemy, an act which could discourage the retreating troops, encourage the enemy, and perhaps even contribute to a rout if poorly executed. Another disadvantage was leaving the most inexperienced troops to lead the vanguard and holding the veterans in reserve until the last moment. Although undoubtedly an effective fighting institution when used properly, the Roman army was never invincible when using its checkerboard formation, as several notable defeats testified to, especially those delivered by Hannibal. Additionally, other nations, such as the Hellenistic powers to the east and the Numidians in the west, copied the Triplex Achaeis at various times, but only achieved mixed successes with their infamous imitation legionaries. The legion's success thus cannot be credited solely to their fighting formation. What of the famed Roman discipline? As we discussed earlier, for all its emphasis on obedience to orders, the Roman army had plenty of instances of insubordination and disregard of military orders, which would lead to an instant court-martial in most modern armies. In the society of warriors, nearly every man, from the highest consul to the lowest velite, claimed the privilege of being able to speak with authority on military matters, a fact which Aemilius Paulus bitterly resents in one of his speeches. At times, it was all Roman commanders could do to contain their men's desire to exhibit their virtas, and on occasion, even great commanders such as Paulus and Scipio Africanus had to bow to the will of the soldiers under them and fight in less than optimal circumstances. No doubt the Roman army was well disciplined in general, especially by the standards of antiquity, but discipline alone also cannot explain the Roman success. So we must return to the twin Roman virtues, 
virtus, manly excellence in war, and disciplina, channeling that excellence in a productive manner. It was the precarious balance between virtus and disciplina that produced the unique combination which made the Roman legion so effective. As historian J.E. Linden puts it, this very conflict between virtus and disciplina underlies the success of the army of the Middle Republic. For despite the disasters it sometimes produced, the result of the conflict was a balance between qualities essential to Roman victory. On the one hand, the bravery and aggression of Roman soldiers of all ranks, and on the other, the ability of commanders to use that bravery and aggressiveness. The Roman army was disobedient because it was brave. A less brave army might have been more obedient, but would have won fewer wars, while an army whose bravery broke entirely through the bonds of disciplina would have been uncontrollable, and so would have won fewer wars as well. In a world where their enemies often represented extremes, brave but ungovernable Gauls, drilled but sometimes timid Greeks, the secret of Roman superiority was that the Roman army, although often inferior in respects in which their enemies excelled, was adequate in respects in which their enemies were not. Thus we have the Roman army that would confront Hannibal when he crossed the Alps into Italy. Before we move on to discuss Hannibal's army in the next episode, I want to briefly cover one quick announcement. If you have had trouble visualizing the Roman triplex Achilles formation during this episode, never fear. I have put up a few pictures on the Layman's Historian webpage, link in the description, which illustrates how the formation looked. Also, since I am still a boy at heart, I could not resist showing off my 28mm wargaming miniatures at the same time. So on the website, you will see the Polybian Roman Legion in their favorite formation in miniature, all in glorious painted 28mm. Keep an eye out for more miniatures in the future on the website, since I intend to use them to illustrate some of the other famous events I talk about here on the show, serving the double purpose of both a cool illustration and a good excuse for me to buy more miniatures. Next time, we will discuss the Carthaginian army under Hannibal, after which we will move on to the start of the Second Punic War. Until then, take care and read more history.